Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today we bring you the third installment in our ongoing series, MGM Stories. We're in the midst of a mini-series within the series about silent stars and how their careers continued, or didn't, into the talkie era. Last week, we talked about Marion Davies, an actress who survived the transition from silence to sound, but couldn't thrive at a studio where all the good female parts went to a powerful studio exec's wife, even though Davies herself was the mistress of a man considered to be one of the most powerful in the world. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Today we're going to tell the story of a silent film master, a director and performer, a comedian and stuntman who went to MGM after making masterpieces, and then with Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg and the resources of the biggest studio in town ostensibly on his side, went on to make movies of steeply declining quality. This person's story was requested in the forums at youmustrememberthispodcast.com by Nick Bowen. Hi, my name is Nick. I would love to hear an episode having to do with Buster Keaton and his struggles at MGM, particularly with Louis B. Mayer and the whole studio system trying to control his life and everything. 
I just thought it was fascinating that this guy who was, you know, considered a creative genius and, like, one of the best physical comedians ever went from having pretty much creative control and doing whatever he wanted, more or less, to having to, you know, he couldn't do anything, really. And later on, Buster said it was pretty much the worst idea of his whole career. Thanks. Have a good day. Thanks, Nick. Buster Keaton did call signing with MGM the biggest mistake of his career, within a chapter in his autobiography titled The Worst Mistake of My Life. Keaton came to MGM right before the transition to sound, but his career was not ended by sound. In fact, his career continued, despite great struggles, for decades. But Keaton had made his masterpieces as an independent filmmaker— and he did find it impossible to work at the same qualitative level within the confines of the Mayer studio, which, as we've seen previously, put the MGM way above everything else. To make matters worse for Keaton, these movies that MGM made him make usually made a lot of money. Keaton started questioning his ability to even know what was good and what was bad. He also started heavily drinking. Join us, won't you, as we explore the greatest mistake Buster Keaton ever made. Buster Keaton was born into a family vaudeville act. His dad was a comic who was performing with magician Harry Houdini in Kansas the night in 1895 when Joseph Keaton was born. Keaton would later claim that Houdini himself gave the kid the nickname Buster, in reference to an incident when the toddler fell down the stairs and seemed completely unfazed. Keaton's dad put the kid on stage as soon as he could get away with it, and took advantage of the little boy's apparent imperviousness to pain— by working the youngster into an extraordinary act in which the child was thrown around the stage as a human mop. Keaton spent the first two decades of his life working with his family, getting the education that one got in vaudeville. Basically, you learned what to do to get a laugh. Or rather, you learned to do whatever it was that would make that audience in that town on that night laugh. What seemed to consistently work for Buster, he found, was that the more seriously he played a scene or a gag on stage, the funnier the crowd seemed to think he was. He started playing everything deadpan, eventually earning the name The Great Stone Face. This persona of sorts gave him the confidence to take risks, and the need to impress paying audiences every night taught him how to constantly generate new material. In 1917, Keaton found himself on the set of a short film directed by and starring Roscoe Arbuckle. Better known by his screen nickname Fatty, Arbuckle was, no pun intended, a huge comedy film star in the mid to late teens. His career would end in the early 1920s when Arbuckle was accused of raping a girl who shortly thereafter died. But when Keaton met him, Arbuckle was doing great. He had just established his own production company, sponsored by Joseph Skank, brother of Nick Skank, the future chief of MGM's parent company, Lowe's. 
Fatty needed someone to perform a stunt in which they were hit by a giant flower sack in his short film, The Butcher Boy, and Keaton volunteered. Impressed with the 21-year-old's gift for taking a fall, Arbuckle incorporated Keaton into the film in a larger way, and soon the Bourne vaudevillian had become part of Arbuckle's movie-making company. After serving for a few months in World War I, Keaton spent nearly two years with Arbuckle, learning the ins and outs of filmmaking, until he felt as knowledgeable working a camera and editing a scene to enhance the laughs as he did crafting a pratfall on the stage. Then Arbuckle was offered big money to start making features at Paramount, so Keaton took over Arbuckle's production company, releasing two real shorts which Keaton produced, directed, and starred in, beginning with One Week in 1920. Given creative free reign, Keaton started experimenting with the possibilities that cinema afforded him that were unavailable to a stage performer. For instance, in the film The Playhouse, released in 1921, Keaton plays dozens of parts, including every member of a five-piece band whose instruments are malfunctioning, as well as the exasperated conductor, two minstrel performers in blackface, and spectators in opera boxes, and their wives. In 1923, Keaton graduated to directing feature films with The Three Ages, a parody of D.W. Griffith's Intolerance. The following year came Sherlock Jr., Keaton's first masterpiece, in which he plays a film projectionist who falls asleep at work and dreams himself into the world on screen. The dream logic of the movie allowed Keaton to justify a stream of surreal situations in which Keaton performed his own stunts. Most of the time he escaped unscathed, but Keaton was no longer the apparently invincible child he had been. Shooting a scene in which he hangs off the spout from a water tower and is rushed with water, Keaton was really blown away by the force of the water. He fell and hit his head, but then he got up and finished the shot like nothing happened. Years later, a medical examination revealed that he had actually fractured his neck. Just five months after Sherlock, Keaton released the film that would become his biggest box office hit, The Navigator, a nautical adventure which, in plumbing comedy from the premises of innocence caught up in war and individuals dwarfed by machines, beat Charlie Chaplin to the themes of some of his greatest films by several years. Keaton's second masterpiece came in 1926 with The General, a comedy about a train engineer set against the Civil War. Keaton spent three quarters of a million dollars on extras for battle scenes, period costumes, and elaborate stunts, like one scene in which a locomotive attempts to cross a burning bridge, which collapses, plunging the train wholesale into a river. They used a real train, and they left it behind in the riverbed. It actually became a tourist attraction until the metal was scavenged during World War II. The General was his most ambitious feature yet, but critics of the day didn't get it, and audiences didn't support it. Keaton followed The General with the film that contains what are probably the most iconic Buster Keaton images today, Steamboat Bill Jr. The movie's spectacular cyclone sequence, in which building fronts blow away and collapse on top of Keaton's hero, feels incredibly influential on the modern special effects film particularly the collapsing dreamscapes and Christopher Nolan's Inception. Like the general before it, Steamboat Bill was ahead of its time, which is another way of saying it lost money. 
Keaton's movies of the early and mid-1920s were visual feasts, works of comic uncanny that would anticipate surrealism before that art movement really got going, and certainly before people like Salvador Dali or Louis Bunuel had moved into filmmaking themselves. For Keaton, the image, the interplay between comic action and the opportunities to fool the eye into seeing the impossible, were what made cinema a unique art. He and Charlie Chaplin, who had a massive success with The Gold Rush while Keaton was experimenting with Technicolor for his film Seven Chances, competed to see who could make a feature film with the fewest subtitles. Chaplin ultimately won. He managed to get it as low as 21. Keaton could only get down to 23. The average silent film had 240. The most Keaton ever used was 56. He was a master of conveying action through imagery alone. But those images didn't come cheap. For much of the 1920s, Keaton's movies were financed and independently produced by the patron he had inherited from Roscoe Arbuckle, Joe Skank, who set up deals to release Keaton's movies through studios like Metro Pictures and First National. Beginning in 1926, Skank became president of United Artists, which existed to empower creative talents like Keaton and release their films. UA released three of Keaton's movies, The General, College, and Steamboat Bill Jr., but that's all they did. They had no input into the content of the films, and they didn't interfere with Keaton's creative process. This seemed like a good setup, but in 1928... Skank convinced Keaton to renounce his indie status. It seems likely that Skank made this decision in part because Keaton's recent films had not brought in big profits for UA, but Skank at least made it seem like he wasn't just cutting Keaton loose. He really couldn't, because by this point, Skank and Keaton were actually family. Buster had married Natalie Talmadge, the sister of Joe's wife, Norma Talmadge. So, Skank worked out a deal to sell Keaton's contract to his brother Nick's company, MGM, who in turn would sign the comedian to a contract guaranteeing a salary of $3,000 a week, plus a percentage of his film's grosses. This was a really sweet deal for 1928. Buster's $3,000 weekly salary was about twice what the average worker made in a year, and it was high even by movie star standards, even at MGM. But everyone close to him advised Buster not to go to MGM. They'll ruin you helping you, said Charlie Chaplin. It's not that they haven't smart showmen there. They have some of the country's best. But there are too many of them, and they'll all try to tell you how to make your comedies. It will simply be one more case of too many cooks. But Joe Skank promised that nothing would change. It will be the same as though you were still working for me, he promised. And Buster Keaton had bills to pay. In 1924, he had spent $33,000 building a house in Beverly Hills for his new wife, Natalie. He wanted to surprise her, so he didn't tell her what the house was like. But when the house was completed, Natalie, whose sisters Norma and Constance were movie stars who lived lavish lifestyles, decided that the brand new house that had been built just for her was too small. So Keaton built another house. A bigger house. A house with 20 rooms, including a screening room and a billiards room, and a massive outdoor staircase that looked like something out of Versailles, leading to a gorgeous swimming pool. He called it the Italian Villa, 
and it cost him $300,000, the equivalent of $4 million in today's money. In short time, the Italian villa, intended as a bespoke paradise for Keaton and his wife, became a very expensive albatross. There was a fundamental mismatch between Buster Keaton and MGM, and everyone knew that going in. Buster Keaton was an independent filmmaker, a conceptualist, director, and action choreographer, as well as a star, and he had made films with a small group of trusted technicians who had been with him for years. He had never stuck to a traditional studio production schedule. He had never even worked from a complete script. According to Keaton, his working process pre-MGM was largely improvisatory. He'd figure out the beginning of the story and the end, and then the middle of the story would just fall into place during production. For each individual scene, he'd figure out the setting and the situation, have the set built and the props placed and the other actors costumed, and on the day of shooting, Keaton would just go to town. As Keaton explained it. Oh, about 50% you have in your mind before you start the picture, and the rest you develop as you're making it. But there's no need for a script. We all know what we're going to do. We just throw gags out right and left when we're shooting because they don't stand up and they don't work well. And then the accidental ones come. Material was the last thing in the world I thought about. He only had to turn me loose in the set and I'd have material in two minutes because I'd been doing it all my life. But MGM couldn't wait two minutes. MGM was only interested in Keaton's star power. They signed him because they didn't have a comedy star. And since UA had Chaplin and Paramount had Harold Lloyd, MGM figured that they should have one too. Keaton's movies didn't all make a ton of money, but compared to Chaplin, he worked fast, reliably cranking out two features per year. But Keaton's working methods were not only comparatively unreliable, they were completely unacceptable to his new studio. MGM built itself as a kingdom within the confines of Hollywood where stars ruled. But in reality, their Culver City lot was a 40-minute drive from the Hollywood sign, and most of its stars had no power over their work, their public personas, or their physical presentation at all. MGM was actually an assembly line factory where behind the camera, labor was impersonal, and stars were the pretty people plugged into a machine. The frosting on the cake, which made the studio's mass entertainments, appear decorative and personalized to the paying audience. All of this said, Keaton's first film at MGM turned out well. Buster got the message that it would be impossible to do his usual thing of riffing off what he referred to as a germ of a concept, and Keaton was willing to compromise. It was suggested that Keaton do a story involving the creation of newsreels, which would create space for him to stage action while at the same time drawing attention to and using footage shot for William Randolph Hearst's newsreel company, which was parked at MGM as part of his sweetheart deal. Keaton thought this could actually be funny, so he agreed, and ended up devising a story that was more meta concerning his status as a newcomer at MGM than it was synergistically promotional of the studio. 
In The Cameraman, Keaton would play a tin-type photographer who meets a beautiful girl who happens to be the receptionist at Hearst's newsreel company. Hoping to impress the girl and also move up in the world, the cameraman trades his tin-type camera for a movie camera and goes out to shoot an audition reel so that he can attempt to land a job alongside his beloved. He finds himself struggling to produce something that puts him in MGM's good graces. This is where Keaton would have ordinarily stopped his plotting and started shooting. But at MGM, this was the point when a team of writers swooped in to flesh out the story. Keaton claimed a total of 22 writers worked on the script. Louis B. Mayer's biographer claims it was only five. In any case, all of the endless conferencing and fine-tuning of the story before shooting made Keaton nervous. He started to lose confidence in his own ideas. Keaton somehow managed to convince Thalberg to allow him to begin shooting the film on location in New York City, far from where the studio executives could meddle. Once there, they found it was impossible to stick to the shooting script and schedule in the midst of the city's unpredictable crowds. So Keaton actually called Thalberg and got permission to put the script aside and shoot whatever he felt he needed to shoot. Then they returned to Hollywood and staged New York crowd scenes, like an action sequence set amidst a Chinatown gang fight on the MGM lot. In the end, the cameraman's hybrid of Keatonian spontaneity and MGM scale worked. Keaton even felt the film benefited from MGM's habit of extensive test screening. MGM had wanted him to end the film with a shot of his usually straight-faced character smiling, but test audiences hated it, so Keaton got his way. The cameraman was well-received, and it did make a small profit. But MGM was not a studio where small profits were good enough. The studio's point of view was that they had tried it Keaton's way, and even though he made a good and funny film, now it was time to try it MGM's way. The MGM way was above all cautious. They had a lot of money invested in Keaton, so they insisted that he stop doing his own dangerous stunts. And not only would they not let him improvise his stories, but after the cameraman, Keaton's scripts would be cobbled together by a team of writers and over the course of a series of story conferences with Thalberg, in the same manner as any other MGM movie. It's important to note that while by 1929, MGM certainly had a track record of manufacturing quality films and major hits, their great movies of this era were not comedies. It was a genre that it took the studio a long time to figure out, in part because what MGM as an entity liked best was finding formulas that worked. That's why MGM's notable comedies of the 1930s were Marx Brothers movies and the Thin Man series. These were repeatable formats in which comic anarchy could be contained. Obviously, someone like Buster Keaton, who was interested in pushing the boundaries of cinema, wasn't going to be all that keen on formulating any kind of formula. But also, MGM weren't planning to let him do the formulating. Keaton got a sense of what a low priority his own creative explorations were to his bosses when he suggested that Spite Marriage, his second feature for MGM, take advantage of the by now already emerged technology of sound. 
The studio told Keaton that they wouldn't let him have access to their sound recording equipment because they didn't have enough of it. And what they did have, they needed for dramas and particularly a spectacular musical that the studio would release in early 1929 called The Broadway Melody. The Broadway Melody would become the biggest hit of 1929 and it would win the Oscar for Best Picture. But three months after its release, Nick Skank from the corporate office was still telling people that he believed that silent film would never fully die out because, quote, certain stories are naturally suited for silent treatment. For now, those certain stories included comedies, which MGM initially believed were a waste of sound. Later in 1929, MGM would cast Buster Keaton, along with most of their major stars with the exception of Greta Garbo, in a film called The Hollywood Review of 1929, a variety show talkie in which Keaton performed a silent comic dance number and also appeared in a studio-wide sing-along of Singin' in the Rain, shot in beautifully saturated technicolor. But when the camera pans past gorgeous singing starlets and lands on Keaton, the so-called Great Stoneface's mouth is shut. As the sing-along continues around him, Buster looks down and around in confusion, as if he's playing the role of being unsure what he's doing there. What was he doing there? What was this joke, if that's what it was, supposed to convey? MGM, always resistant to changes in their star's personas, seems to have been literally afraid to let Keaton open his mouth. They were clearly reticent to marshal a silent comedian's transition into the world of talkies on the grounds that audiences couldn't accept seeing a beloved performer doing something new. But by 1930, most theaters didn't want to book silent films. Exhibitors were complaining that silent comedies in particular were getting such a weak response that it didn't make financial sense to show them. Financial sense was one thing that could move MGM into action, and so it was decided that Keaton's next movie, Free and Easy, would be a talkie. But Keaton and MGM had different ideas of what a talking Buster Keaton picture would or could look like and sound like. Keaton wanted to experiment with sound, but he didn't think of himself as a joke teller. If anything, he wanted to actually talk as little as possible. He felt the same about spoken dialogue as he had about intertitles. But early sound comedies often fell into the mode of proto-sitcom-style spoken farce. The sound equipment was big and cumbersome and didn't allow for a lot of movement. Keaton found himself wedged unwillingly and unhappily into scenes set in small rooms, in which he and other actors were expected to scuttle back and forth, chattering mindlessly about stupid contrivances. Life is too serious to do farce comedy. <laughs> Don't give me puns. Don't give me jokes. No wisecracks. I'm always going to find places in my story where dialogue is not called for. You don't want anything, do you? No, I don't want anything from you. Stop talking to me. I'm sick of Things were not just bad at work. On the set of Spite Marriage, Keaton started an affair with his female co-star, weakening his marriage to Natalie Talmadge, whose sister, the actress Norma Talmadge, you'll remember, was married to Joe Skank, Keaton's former boss and the brother of his current corporate overlord. Soon the Talmadges turned against Keaton. 
and he could only imagine what the skanks thought of him. With all of the stresses in his life, Buster Keaton started drinking. A lot. In 1930, Keaton made the second sound film in which he had a starring role, Doughboys. Though other writers fleshed out the script and got the credit, the story was generated by Buster, based on his memories of his months as an infantryman in his early 20s. That Thalberg allowed Keaton to make significant input into the story made Keaton feel as though things were looking up. And when it came time to sign a contract extension at MGM, Keaton went for it, not least because he still had to pay for his house. Keaton's next film literally took place on his own turf. Parlor, bedroom, and bath was shot at the Italian villa. It was in almost every other way a terrible fit for Keaton, a fizzy rich people farce that was full of dialogue and only allowed a few opportunities for physical comedy. And it's not like the Italian villa was a happy place for Keaton at this point. His drinking and his affairs had become untenable for his wife Natalie, and at some point, possibly after Keaton's affair with an MGM starlet named Kathleen Key ended with Key tearing apart his dressing room, an event which was not kept out of the media, Buster moved out of his house and into a bungalow on the studio lot. He and Natalie had had two sons, who Buster missed, and one weekend he picked them up from the house and took them on a little trip. To Mexico. Natalie Talmadge Keaton called the cops and had her husband detained in San Diego for kidnapping. Soon Natalie filed for divorce. She got custody of their two sons and changed their last names from Keaton to Talmadge. Natalie also got the Italian villa, which she sold. It was later owned by Cary Grant and then by James Mason. Keaton, meanwhile, bought a giant mobile home and parked it on the studio lot, using it, much to Louis B. Mayer's dismay, as party central. The MGM comedies continued to make money, which baffled Keaton, made him more depressed and made him drink more. The more he drank, the less nimble he was, the less able to pull off anything like the extraordinary physical action scenes of his earlier features. Not like most of the films that MGM was crafting for him required anything so ambitious, or even for him to carry scenes on his own. In his worst MGM films, Keaton is cast as a hapless idiot, and when he does get to perform interesting action, he seems increasingly drained of life. Beginning with The Passionate Plumber in 1932, Louis B. Mayer decided to team Keaton with Jimmy Durante, a bombastic comic presence whose persona couldn't have been less like that of Keaton's stone face. The Passionate Plumber was a hit and got great reviews, but it hardly felt like a Buster Keaton movie at all. Keaton's understated brilliance was drowned out by Durante's bluster. The source material for The Passionate Plumber was based on the same play as a Marion Davies film called Her Cardboard Lover, released by MGM just four years earlier, and Keaton figured that MGM knew that it wasn't a good fit for him. He suspected that Durante was being groomed to replace him as MGM's major comic star. Keaton may have thought that MGM was now intentionally giving him bad material, 
which is a thing that MGM might have done under some circumstances. But in this case, these movies that Keaton hated were making money. And of course, the way that it worked at MGM was that if something made money, you kept doing versions of that thing until it stopped making money. Almost as if Keaton was, consciously or otherwise, determined to throw a wrench in the works of the MGM machine, his drinking had worsened to the point that he started causing delays on the sets of his movies. Delays increased budgets, and increased budgets decreased the likelihood that these movies that made Keaton miserable would continue to make money. He may have thought that if the movies stopped making money, then MGM would stop making them and would let him do what he wanted to do. But more likely, Keaton was just out of control. By his third film with Durante, called What, No Beer?, Ironically, I guess, a film about the repeal of Prohibition, Keaton had to be relegated to the sidelines of the story because the producers never knew when they were going to be able to use him. When Buster did come to set, he was noticeably drunk or hungover, and there was one week where he didn't show up at all. A week before the premiere of What No Beer in February 1933, the New York Times ran an article headlined, Keaton Quits Screen. The story reported that the comedian, who had been struck down by the flu recently, had now suffered a total physical breakdown and was going to Honolulu to recover. Keaton's contract with MGM was scheduled to end in April, but according to this story, by mutual agreement it had been canceled two months early. This story is an example of MGM's sterling publicity department at work, and that mutual agreement line is particularly rich. According to Buster Keaton, there was no flu, no breakdown per se, and there was definitely no Honolulu because he was broke. What there was was a full bottle of whiskey to drain every day like it was his job. All of his weekends were lost weekends, as he put it, and a lot of weekdays were too. But when Mayer demanded that he show up on the lot one Saturday in October for a photo op, Keaton told him that he wouldn't do it. Not because he had party plans, but because he had agreed to play the mascot at a college football game and he wasn't going to break his promise to the school. According to Keaton, on Saturday he went to the football game, And on Monday morning, he reported for work and found a two-line letter from Mayer in his dressing room informing him that his contract had been terminated. Later, Keaton figured he probably should have sued, but he hadn't been in the right frame of mind at the time. And anyway, I haven't heard of a lot of people who successfully sued MGM in the 1930s. He was embarrassed. He hadn't really thought it would happen. Buster knew he hadn't been on his best behavior, what with the drinking, and he knew that Mayer preferred Jimmy Durante's comic stylings to his own. But because his movies were still successful, he had figured that he was safe. He had also figured that Irving Thalberg, who did think Keaton was funny, had his back. But Mayer acted without consulting Thalberg. Thalberg, the good cop executive at MGM, had warned Keaton that his behavior was costing the studio money. But Thalberg was so taken aback that Mayer had terminated one of their biggest stars without even telling him 
that Irving passionately argued for Keaton's reinstatement. Keaton wasn't a bad guy, Thalberg said. He was just going through a bad time. This argument was perhaps more persuasive after What No Beer opened and made money. When Keaton's friend and frequent co-director Eddie Sedgwick pitched to Thalberg an idea he and Keaton had had to do a parody remake of MGM's massive hit Grand Hotel, Thalberg got Mayer's permission to invite Keaton back to the lot to discuss it. But Keaton refused to go back unless Mayer called and invited him back himself. That wasn't going to happen, and Keaton was too proud to come back with his tail between his legs. So he didn't come back at all. With MGM in the rear view, Keaton claimed he was blacklisted from every studio in town who had heard all the rumors about his drinking. He ended up shortly after that making two real shorts for a low-budget outfit called Educational Pictures, which didn't make educational pictures, but rather short comedies that played on the programs before features. This was a very sharp, sudden fall for someone who had been one of the highest-paid stars at MGM just six years earlier. It's almost impossible to imagine a star facing this kind of fate today, partially because there's no longer any real distinction between high and low culture. But I guess in terms of public perception, the downward trajectory of Adam Sandler, who was the highest-paid and most bankable comedy star of 2009 and now is pretty widely considered to be an unfunny hack whose decreasingly profitable movies are increasingly offensive to women and minorities, comes close. You could make the case that Sandler's move from Sony, the company currently occupying the MGM lot, to Netflix, admits his decline in popularity, is similar to Buster Keaton getting kicked out of MGM and being unemployable in future filmmaking. But... Sandler still controls most of the movies he appears in by writing and or producing them. So if the quality of his output has declined, he's in large part to blame. He also stands to make a much larger share of the profits reaped by his films than Keaton ever did as a studio contract player. Who knows what could have happened to Keaton's career and his body of work if he hadn't been forced to cede his creative control to MGM in order to keep getting paychecks. But then again, robbing creative control was kind of what MGM did. And that was kind of what the money was in exchange for. Keaton spent the next few years traveling to places like France and Mexico to make not very good movies. He then returned to the States and made what he called crummy two-reelers at Columbia, and he was apparently observed crying in between takes there. He tried to stop drinking a number of times and failed, until taking what was known as the Keeley cure, which involved doctors force-feeding the patient multiple types of alcohol to make them so physically ill that they'd lose the taste for liquor. The Keeley cure didn't work for Keaton the first time around. Then after the second time he tried it, he stayed sober for five years. And then he started drinking again. But he never got as bad as he had been. And during his last marriage, to a dancer named Eleanor Norris, he apparently got his habit under control for good. Finally, in 1940, newlywed to Norris, Keaton decided that he needed to make a living. 
and he couldn't bear to do it doing what he had been doing for any longer. So he sucked it up and went back to MGM. Eddie Mannix, the studio's great fixer, brought Keaton on as an uncredited gag writer at the rate of $100 a week. Keaton came up with the opening scene of the Marx Brothers film A Day at the Circus. He'd be brought in to coach stars like Lana Turner and Clark Gable as to how to sell a physical joke. But mostly he worked on Red Skelton movies, often recycling and reworking gags from Keaton's previous movies. I Doed It, starring Skelton and directed by Vincent Minnelli, lifted sequences from Spite Marriage shot for shot. Skelton was even cast in a remake of Keaton's The Cameraman, called Watch the Birdie. And then came television. Keaton got his own show on a local station in L.A., which reignited interest in his filmography and his talents. He began touring, doing live versions of gags from his movies, often in Europe and sometimes with his wife Eleanor as his partner. One thing led to another, and soon Keaton was in demand on the stage and on the tube, and making real money for the first time since his stint at MGM. It was during this period that Keaton appeared in one scene of Billy Wilder's masterpiece about stardom and decay, Sunset Boulevard. In this clip, Busters is the voice saying, pass. Sometimes there'd be a little bridge game in the house at a twentieth of a cent a point. I'd get half of her winnings. Once they ran up to 70 cents which was about the only cash money I ever got. The others around the table would be actor friends, dim figures you may still remember from the silent days. I used to think of them as her waxworks. One diamond. One heart. Spade? Pass. Three no trump. Pass. Pass. This scene gives an indelible impression of these former stars as washouts. But that wasn't Keaton's real-life experience, certainly not by 1950. In fact, in the years between the release of Sunset Boulevard and his death from cancer at the age of 70 in 1966, Keaton was busier than ever. His final feature film was Richard Lester's adaptation of Stephen Sondheim's A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum making Buster Keaton the rare figure whose career spanned all the way from the silent era through the postmodern hip cinema of the late 60s. He survived the transition from silence to sound, the emergence of television, and the fall of the studio system. He survived booze. And he outlived Louis B. Mayer by nine years. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. You must remember this as part of the Panoply Network. You can find the whole lineup of Panoply shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. This show was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research intern is Allison Gemmel, and our editor is Henry Malofsky. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, you must remember this podcast.com. And please spread the word about the show any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. And if you haven't already, please rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can also find the show on pretty much any podcatcher of your choice. We also included audio clips of Buster Keaton speaking for himself. 
You can find the sources of these clips in the show notes to this episode at youmustrememberthispodcast.com. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. I'm gonna make a mistake I'm gonna do it on purpose I'm gonna waste my time